Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Papira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. And Bill, today you wanted to talk about a case that I know you know very well, and I know it pretty well too, and and we were just talking before we started recording, and I realized that maybe I don't know it, because I, I thought I knew it, and now you just kind of threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing. That's the Tory Pines murders that took place in San Diego, and... It's a really interesting case. What drew you to this case? Well, I'm unofficially uh, doing investigation on this case. Um, an unofficial party reached out to me about this case and asked that I look it over and tell me who I believe was involved, if I can you know, come up with new leads and possibly uh, reopen the case because for a while there, the San Diego Police Department basically said, "Look, we got the killer, we have him, and end the story." And actually, they blundered this case. So uh, I had a, a party who was associated to the family contact me and want to know my opinion of the case, and that's why I know so much about the case, and I have my theories about it. I have a working theory on what really happened. Uh, how many people are involved and actually one of the guys that they accused of it is absolutely innocent of the crime so yeah cool yeah let's get into it i just want to remind everyone to follow us on instagram and facebook at death row diaries i don't know who uses facebook anymore but feel free to do that and check us out on patreon that's patreon.com slash death row diaries where you will get exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else, which I guess is the whole definition of exclusive. So, Bill, uh, why don't we do a quick overview here? We have two girls that are killed on the beach, right? Yeah, so we have two cases. Um, the first one happened in 1978. Um, Barbara 
Nanteus. She's 15 years old, and Jim Alt, who is 17, uh, experienced a very traumatic evening. And just to give you a little bit of a, you know, a, a bird's eye view of what they look like, what kind of kids they are, they're both, you know, they're a couple, they're 10, they're happy, they're carefree. She's a cheerleader, and he's the big time surfer. Uh, you know, they're the perfect SoCal California couple. Uh, he even appeared in uh, Surfer Magazine as a wetsuit as advertised. He was one of the models for a wetsuit advertisement. So, you know, you're talking about blonde hair, blue eyed kids, you know, just at least he was, I think, and she had brown eyes, but these are just the perfect couple. And she, um, you know, on the, on the weekend of August 12th, 1970, her parents decide to go away for the weekend. And they put a family friend to look after Barbara and her siblings who are younger than she is. But as soon as her parents left, Barbara and Jim snuck off to the beach with a, uh, a pair of their friends, a guy by the name of Rick Salga and his girlfriend. So you, know, you can imagine, Matt, they get to the beach, there's a parking lot, there's a party going on, there's a lot of kids there. You know, this is the late, late 70s, the long hair, it's just a great time to be around. You know, I remember this case when it happened. There was a lot of rumors going around the beach. I, you know, as you know, I was a surfer as well from Huntington Beach, and I surfed the entire California coast. And I remember this case. I remember the rumors that they, you know these kids were killed on the beach, and it, it was a big thing. So anyways, um, you know, after the party's kind of over, um, you know, the, couples, the two couples decide to separate for privacy. And Rick and his girlfriend, they take the station wagon that they're in, and, you know, Barbara and Jim go down to the beach, and they, they put these two sleeve bags together, and they, you know, they kind of hug and kiss, and just for privacy, looking at the stars or listening to music. It's the perfect evening. You know, it's August, so it's beautiful in San Diego. So the next thing that happens is that Jim, her boyfriend, 17-year-old, you know, surfer guy, strong kid, okay, strong, athletic, he wakes up and he feels like he's freezing. He can't see and he's completely wet. He also feels for Barbara and he can't find her. So he's blinded and disoriented and he feels his way up the beach to a fence line and begins to go up the sandy hill to where his friend Rick and his girlfriend are in a station wagon. When he gets there, he knocks on the window and his friends wake and they are terrified for what they see. There is their best friend, Jim, and he's covered in blood. His hair is matted. He's bruised. His face is swollen. He looks like he's been beaten from an inch of his life. This kid, with all things against him, climbed up. He was blind, by the way. He couldn't see. He's beaten but with a log and with a rock. Basically, left him for dead. And when Rick sees him, the first thing this guy says is, find Barb. And then he falls out. So his friend Rick runs down to the beach to look for Barbara. And unfortunately, he finds her. She's dead. Her sand has been packed into her mouth. She's been raped, sodomized, 
She, her breasts have been mutilated with a sharp instrument. And she's basically strangled and beaten to death. Later it's determined that she was in fact beaten with an object about the head, probably a rock or a log that was found there. Uh, her, her wounds were so severe that she was almost unrecognizable. Sand was, I said, packed into her mouth. And they found that her breasts were mutilated. And we, now we, you, you and I have discussed about how sometimes killers do this. They mutilate the breasts and there's different reasons why they do it. Um, you know, she was raped and sodomized. And Jim, her boyfriend, survived. But he had traumatic brain injuries. He went into a coma for several days after this. And he had steel plates placed into his head. He has no memory of what happened. But from what we can see, you can paint a pretty good picture, an idea of what happened that night. Right, Matt? Yeah. And someone came up on him unsuspecting. You know, this is especially back then i imagine it was just not a dangerous place it still isn't but um yeah someone just ambushed him basically right yeah in taking consideration that this is a public beach there's been a party there's people oh you know i hung around the beach so there's always people walking up and down this killer or killers had to be extremely brash they had a set of balls on them to pull this off right in this situation. And I do mention possible pair. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at this the situation. You have a 17-year-old boy, athletic, big, strong, is not a pushover. So usually when you jump on someone, beat on someone, they don't just stand there. Yes, if you catch them on guard, you couldn't riddle them uh, unconscious. But the young lady next to him is not just gonna sit there and wait her turn. She would take off and run, scream something. Nothing was heard. So in my opinion, and I'll come to this later on why I think this more than anything, there are two assailants here. One of them hit Jim and one of them grabbed Barb. She was the target from the very get-go. Jim just happened to be an innocent bystander. Uh, I mentioned before that there was a party or a get-together at the parking lot. There's many kids that are playing stereos and stuff. The killer or killers targeted Barbara at that party, which leads me to believe that they are at least familiar with the beach. In my opinion, they live within a quarter of a mile of that beach or closer because they're just walking around, they target a person, and they go after them. You're saying that it was kind of an opportunistic thing? Well, no, I believe that they were out stalking. Right. And they saw her. Right. And so they, once they locked onto her, yes, they went there and then got her. Right, so they went out looking for someone, and they found... They found her. Yes, uh, cause, you know. exactly. Because they had no idea she would be there until they got to the party and they saw her. I don't think these guys are just walking down the beach and they see a couple on the and just decide to go for it. See, the reason for this is because you don't know where their friends are at. 
you don't know who was with them. They had been watching that couple for a couple hours prior to acting on it. They watched their friend go to the go to the station wagon. They waited till they got to sleep. They waited till Barbara and Jim went to sleep, and then they attacked. Let me call you back. Hey, man. Yeah. So I'm. Couldn't it be one guy, though, that's laying in wait, and then he waits for the dude to go take a piss, or he waits for the for the girl to, to walk down and dip her toes in the water, whatever, whatever the scenario is, waits for him to kind of be a little bit separated? Sure, it's possible. But because I have the, well, the good fortune to look at this case after I look at all the evidence from two cases... I am fairly confident, I'm actually positive that it was more than one guy, and I'll, I'll explain to you why, but um, I'm confident it's, it's two individuals. Okay, because I don't want to bury the lead, but that goes against all the reporting that I've read, or I believe anyone's really read on this. So, all right, so we have this this murder, and... and then there's another one that's um, a similar MO, but they're never yeah, so they're not connected until much later, right? Right. And, and again, this is why you know I do have the benefit of seeing everything from afar, and my experience as basically a mind stalker when it comes to serial killers, I'm fairly confident. I'm actually positive it's two individuals. And I know that law enforcement didn't want to recognize that this is because the politics are involved and you have all that kind of stuff involved and there is no room for politics when you're trying to hunt down a killer who murdered two children. So I have a problem with that. So let me go on and tell you why I know what I know. So the beach grows quiet for six years. But then in 1984, okay, all right, so 14-year-old Claire Hogg was found very close to where Barbara was also found. She, too, had been strangled. The uh, sand or gravel was stuffed into her mouth. Um, there was a lot of mutilation to her breast, and her genitalia had been stabbed. Now, this plays a very important part later on but I've spoken about this numerous times at lectures and with you, Matt, that sometimes serial killers use an instrument of violence as, an, as a surrogate for their penis. And we find this in this case. Um, so, you know, she's found very close to the place, a, a beachcomber actually is walking by and he sees her. The police come, they begin to investigate. And it turns out that Claire and her brother had been sent to their grandparents' house who lived very close to the Torrey State Beach. Um, and they came with her friend, Kim Jammer or Jammer. And they came from Rhode Island. A couple nights before this, Claire convinces her to sneak, her friend, obviously Kim, to sneak out with her. And they go to this bridge after dark to smoke a cigarette or something like that, which kids do. And when they get there, Kim has a panic attack. She feels someone's 
lurking around, someone's close to her, she feels like she's in danger, and she wants to go back. Of course, Claire agrees to go back, but Tim makes her promise she'll never sneak off again. Now I'm gonna stop right there and just give you guys a bit of little insight here. I've spoken at length about instincts and being aware of your surroundings. I end every episode with be safe, be aware of your surroundings, your life can depend on it. This is a perfect example where be aware of your surroundings. Her friend Kim allowed her instincts to take over. That killer saw them a couple nights before that. That's what was going on there. She was picking up that someone was close to them that meant them harm. It's a, it's a primal instinct that humans have, animals have it. We kind of ignore it, but we play it off like, oh, I'm, I'm big, I'm bad, I don't, I don't need to pay attention to this. She allowed it to, but, and it saved her life. She left, Claire left, but unfortunately, uh, Tim went back to Rhode Island and Claire, the night after, sneaks off. She goes to that bridge again. And unfortunately for her, and, and the guy didn't sneak up on her. I think the guy just walked up and talked to her and was able to get her in a position where she was out of sight of people. Because obviously she was not asleep. He probably told her, hey, let's smoke a cigarette. He probably had some music, maybe had a little radio or something. Met her away and then attacked her. Um, so, as I said, the body was posed. Sand was packed in her mouth or gravel, which everyone she was beaten. Her breasts were mutilated. There is not a definite answer on whether she was raped or not, but her, her genitalia was mutilated with a sharp object, which I believe was a knife. And really, the case goes cold aside from the guy who found her, a guy by the name of Wallace Wheeler, and this guy's a real quack. You know, he, he meets the, par the parents who are out there when they find other daughters that they fly out. And they meet this guy on the beach. He's walking around and stuff. And for a while, he becomes a suspect. He tells the parents that he was a, a psychic, a fighter pilot, that he could see at night. That's how he found the body. And that at night, he has visions of Claire coming back to her and that her eyes are radiant. And that, you know, she was beautiful and just all this crazy stuff. So, of course, the cops immediately lock on this guy and they believe that this guy may be a subject. But turns out he's just a quack, okay? He ran across the body and that's basically all that happened. Uh, there was a death of Adam Ashley, a 14-year-old boy in 1979 on May 17th. He was beaten to death on that beach. That case has nothing to do with this case. So I'm gonna make that very clear right now because people will go back and say, oh man, this case, that case has nothing to do with this case. And, uh, and uh, so going on, this case goes quiet. There's nothing happens. They have a cold case and it's cold to 2008, Matt. And what happens in 2008 is, well, it's at first no one admits that these cases are related in any way, shape or form. Actually, when someone said they were, law enforcement played it down and said they're not related. So, the families of both girls... Which is ridiculous, who, by the way, because, like, you just explained how they both, for example, had sand stuffed in their mouth. Right. The signature, in this case, 
the MO in this case is so familiar, you would have to be retarded or hiding something to not see the, the similarity. And let me just say this. The signature of this killer, killers, slash, is so advanced and so specific that you would really have to be blind not to see the, the posing of the body, the mutilation of the breast, the uh, strangulation, but also the beating and then the packing of the mouth with sand. You can have a lot of definitions, but it's very specific to this killer. You have two girls, preteen or teen, 14, 15, they're adolescents, they're children. That this guy's a pedophile. That they did not recognize what was going on is ridiculous. And I mean, this is a big blunder by the San Diego Police Department. Yeah. So even the families of the two victims, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they, they weren't really aware of the other case or, or certainly, you know, that the MO was the same and everything. So I'm sure that they would have wanted that information out there, right? Absolutely. It would have maybe brought some attention to this case. It maybe would have solved it. I don't know for sure. But it's almost a quarter of a century, 2008, when both cases are united. The families are told that they believe that they have a culprit who committed both crimes. The parents are very upset about this. But again, the case goes cold for, for four more years. Then in 2012, because of advanced DNA technology, there's a break in the case. There is DNA linked to the murder of Claire. And it so happens that three blood types or three DNA hits come up. So one of them is of a convicted rapist. And his name is Ronald Tatro. He is a rapist. He is suspected of killing a prostitute as well as luring a child, a 15 year old girl, trying to lure her to rape and kill her. And another gentleman by the name of Kevin Brown, who has no record, but he's very familiar to the San Diego Police Department. And that's because Kevin Brown is a criminalist that works in the laboratory or laboratory for the San Diego Police Department. The third DNA found is of Claire's teenage boyfriend. So he's excluded because he lives in Rhode Island. Okay, so this is, you know, really interesting because in 2012, DNA is pretty specific. But in 1984, when this case happened, it's not so specific. People are making problems. And so let me just say that Kevin Brown is a victim of this crime and is a victim just like the two young ladies were. That's the guy that... Because he was a criminal. Sorry, I cut you off, but... That's the guy that worked in the in the crime lab, Kevin Brown. He was. And in those days, criminalists would bring their own semen to test the liquids that they were using to detect semen. That semen was put in the same refrigerator with evidence. And the guy actually working on Claire's case, the 1984 case, was working right next to Kevin. So when the police asked him, hey, or asked, the, the, the criminalist, hey, other criminalist, 
could this be a case of contamination? Cross-contamination because guys didn't change gloves back then, they, they handled the evidence. It, it was just a soup of blunders in this laboratory because guys didn't know how advanced DNA technology or touch technology, how uh, advanced it would be like it is today. And I'm sure in 20 years it'll be even more advanced. So the technician that was ahead of tech told the cop, flat out guy by the name of Mike Lambert, look, there is a high probability that this case is a false positive because Kevin worked in his office and they were always changing gloves. They didn't, they left things hanging. They put their own sitting in the same refrigerator with evidence. This case is highly probable. However, my Brown tells a, a judge, their judge are telling us that it's impossible for there to be contamination. So the judge signs a search warrant. Of course, they go to Kevin Brown's house. He's retired now, he's a good man. But because when he was in his 20s, he went to a couple strip bars, and because they used to call him Kinky, the cops thought, ha, we got the guy. He also took photographs of models. He was part of a society of guys that took photographs of models. Women were also taking photographs. So they basically persecuted this guy. They chased him around. They went to his house. They they tore apart his house. He became so depressed that at some point he committed suicide because this cop cheated him. How do I know he cheated? Because later on, of course, his wife sued and she won a $6 million settlement because the police basically said, we caught the guy who killed her. And they made him to be a pedophile and a rapist and a basically a, a murderer. And he was not. No. So let's, let's exclude him. So the, exclude the young... The, 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 obvi- sorry, the obvious thing here, if they find DNA... 60 seconds remaining. If they find DNA from this rapist, you know, underbelly creep guy and this, you know, respectable crime lab guy, you got to establish that those two guys met up with each other, went to rape and kill a girl. And there's just no, I don't think anyone really thinks that that happened, right? Well, exactly. And then when I come back, I'm going I'm to lay the whole case in why I understand and why I see things the way I do. I'll be right back. Hey. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's no link between the crime lab guy and the rapist guy. They didn't hang out. They didn't know each other, right? They didn't know each other. And the, the police went after Kevin because by this time, rapist Ronald Tatro committed suicide in 2011. So they really couldn't blame anybody else. You know, it was, it was uh, he, he drowned himself in Tennessee. Here is, okay, now I'll return to, 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 to Tatro for a minute. So we find his blood all over her shorts. That cannot be explained. We can explain why Kevin Brown, the criminalist, is found on vaginal swabs from Claire. It is simple. He worked the laboratory, he put his semen inside the refrigerator, and there was cross-contamination. It's simple. But the important part that we should take into consideration here is that we have a repeat offender, okay? Tatro was imprisoned in 1978 when the first murder took place. Kevin Brown was at the university in Sacramento, California, 500 miles away, he was not there. So what, of course, you say, well, okay, Bill, so, okay, smarty pants, how are you gonna 
He ducked this. Okay. Real simple. Castro was the second stooge that the dominant serial killer used. So, how do I know this? In the second murder, which involved Claire. What do you, what do you mean Castro's by... What do you mean by stooge? I don't understand. Okay. So we've, we've reviewed cases where serial killers like Bitteker has a second guy involved in it, like his name is Norris. I see. You have William Bonney who used a bunch of kids, you know, 17, 18 year old kids to be there, his accomplices. He used three different ones. We have the candy man who uses two different teenagers to lure people and kill people. That, so the serial killer is not the kid. They're just as culpable, but the serial killer is the dominant. In 1978, Tatro could not have been the second stooge. He became his accomplice later on. Why is his bullet short? Because when they were stabbing the, the child's genitalia, he cut himself and that's where the blood got on her, on her shorts. It's real simple. He was not around for the first murder. The common deal here is that the first murder in 1978 has a dominant serial killer and he has a second accomplice. He has the first accomplice. The first accomplice died. They didn't want to do it no more. They fell out. He killed them. No one knows. But that second accomplice is no longer in the picture when the second murder takes place, which is the same serial killer. The guy packs them out. The guy who poses them. He's the dominant force. He's the one laying the signature, and he uses Tatro for that. How do I know Tat why this is so easy for me to figure out? Tatro committed suicide the anniversary of Claire's murder, the same date. Okay? What are the chances of that? So you're saying he was remorseful? No. Absolutely not. He did it because he wanted to bring light to the fact that he did it. He also wanted to bring light because I told you, I've explained before that killers, especially serial killers, rapists, etc., that the, that the act of killing, the act of raping is a monumental moment in their lives. They want to bring light to it. It's like when you come home with a trophy and you win first place, you put it on your mantle and you tell every person around, hey, I won first place. That's what he was doing. It's no different than a, than a, than a serial killer taking a trophy. His trophy was committing suicide on our day. That way everybody would talk about it. You and I are talking about it just because of that reason. He attached himself to it forever. Right. So he's out. And I don't know if you want to pivot to Kevin Brown being investigated. Um, you know, he's a shy, nebbish kind of um, very awkward guy. I don't think he was liked by a lot of his peers. Not that that was his fault, but I don't think he fit in. And uh, from his wife's account, it was driving him crazy. I mean, his reputation was being completely uh, disparaged and ruined. You know, the, the San Diego police were saying, we know for a fact, this is the guy. This guy is a murderer, rapist. And, you know, of course, if that were me, I, I kind of put myself in his position, you know, like I've been accused of stuff that I didn't do and nothing at all along the lines of what we're talking about. Just like, you know, 
you said this to this person. I never said that. And something that small, it drove me nuts, you know, because I couldn't prove it. And, and so I can't even imagine what this guy was going through. Yeah, imagine a guy who's a criminal. He, he's worked with law enforcement his life. He's retired, he's married, he has a reputation, has a family, and now uh, a guy by the name Mike Lambert, a cop, decides to lie to a judge to get a search warrant, and once the search warrant is issued, now he's on a fucking roll. He's targeting this guy, he's talking to his friends, he's talking to the public, he's telling them, and they actually, there is a newspaper, several newspaper articles written to say, San Diego Police Department found the killer of Claire. It, it, it just, they basically accused him, tried and convicted him in the media. The guy was driven to commit suicide, and of course, a court agreed with it. They gave his wife $6 million, which doesn't pay back for the, the love of, of her husband and, you know, this guy's reputation. But that was a, a wreck across the knuckles of this guy named Mike Lambert, who's a San Diego police for a law enforcement guy that really just lied. It was proven he lied because the technician he interviewed, she came to court and said, hey, I never told him that. I told the opposite. It's highly probable that contamination took place because of the procedures used back in those days. They were primitive compared to today. And so this case, so you have the, the main, one of the, I'm sorry, the main culprit of the case the one who committed the crime in 1978 with an accomplice. Because, look, guys who use accomplices don't just stop and go, stop and go. They get another accomplice. They feel secure about it. They like doing it that way. They like the maybe the audience. So he used another person in 1978. We don't know who that person is, nor do we know who the main character is or serial killer in this particular case. Now, of course, people are going to say, well, Bill, a serial killer, even by the FBI's uh, standard and your standard is a person who's committed three or more murders in succession as different acts of element. I get that, yes, absolutely. And we only have two murders here. But ah, there is more. This, the one in 1978 was not his first kill. How do I know this? He's too far advanced. And his MO and his signature is too far developed for him to be a blundering, you know, novice. A guy still filling around the dark, like I like to say with serial killers. This guy has other cases. Unfortunately for us, there's a lot of cases like this that take place and people don't connect them because law enforcement don't share information. You know, but we do have, and I, and I, will, and I will go out on a little bit of a limb here, I don't know too much about these cases. It's very hard to get this information, especially from prison, which I am in. But the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, it's called VICAP, they had a, a crime analysis report which identified two more murders in Southern California with similar characteristics as Barbara Nantes' case. One of them is of Donna Gentile, or Gentile, age 22, and the murder of Marsha Thunderbrook. She's 25. And they were found in East County. Both cases are unsolved. And, you know, they were extremely, the characteristics were similar. We, all, we also had a Jane Doe in 1974 with similar characteristics, meaning mutilation of breasts, a gravel stuffed in the mouth. And, 
you know, her body, like Barbara's, was dragged across the sand, posed. So you really have other cases that are there, and there's a very good chance that these guys could have been involved in this. Now, there's a man in Long Beach by the name of Gary Stamp. He reportedly confessed to the Jane Doe murder in 1974. And he was 61 when he died of cancer while in custody before he could be brought to trial. So we'll never know whether he was involved or not. But understand that the FBI report, a VICAP report, does pinpoint other murders that had similar characteristics. I don't have those cases in front of me, unfortunately. But in my opinion, the case of Barbara Nanteas and Claire in 1978 and in 1984 were committed by three different individuals. The main serial killer was an accomplice in 1978, we don't know who that is, and his second accomplice, which was Tantro, the rapist killer. And we know who he is, and he's dead. We have his DNA, and it matches the DNA on Claire's shorts. There's no reason why that, that evidence should be there. He is one of the he is one of the culprits in this. The other two, specifically the main culprit, the dominant, has never been caught. And at this age, he's probably eighty or ninety years old. He's, he's probably dead or in prison. Yeah. So, if you listen to someone at the San Diego PD, uh, their stance is going to be. We found Tatro's DNA. He's a notable rapist. He killed himself. Case closed, right? Well, yeah, but then they have to explain that the 1978 case where Tatro was in prison, so he couldn't have committed it, is also a related case because of the same MO and the same signature. So they can't explain that. That's where they have a problem because they like to close cases. And I understand, look, I'm, I'm not here to bad mouth laws on law enforcement, but when they make mistakes like this, they accuse innocent people and they, it drives them to commit suicide. Yeah, I got a problem. I'm gonna call up, you know, I'm gonna call a frog when a frog is. And they well, it, really- it, it, it went beyond a mistake. They knew he didn't do it and they continued pushing for it. Absolutely. And that's why I have a problem with it. And that's why you see and you hear my voice is a bit, you know, strange because it, it upsets me. I mean, there, there's a, an innocent guy who ends up taking his own life because his reputation is ruined by some clown named Mike Lambert who wanted to make a reputation that he caught, but he did not want to relate the cases because he couldn't explain how the hell is Tacho in prison. He couldn't commit the first murder. He couldn't be involved in it. And the criminalist is in college 500 miles away. Again, he can't account for that, so he likes to keep the cases nice separately, nice and separate. The truth is, the cases are related, and the case is not closed. You have one of the three culprits, and... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. They should think this case should be open. It should be looked at. They should look at all the evidence again. The the DNA technology now and touch DNA is so much more advanced than it was in 2012 or 14. I believe they should be looking at this case again because there is a serial killer that got away with it. Well, weren't you on death row? I can think of two off the top of my head. Weren't you on death row with a couple serial killers who were active in this area around this time? Absolutely. Southern California in the 1970s and 80s was the hub of serial killers galore. Yes, there was a number of killers there. And some of those killers overlap each other's territories. You're absolutely right. Is there you know, anything the serial that... Killer, yeah, the serial could, could be possibly could have gone, gone to death row and did something different. You know, or could have been in prison totally unrelated. The truth of this case, there's a lot to be desired. I have not seen all the police reports. There is much more that I could look at and take and give an opinion on. In my opinion, three people committed these crimes. One serial killer and two accomplices. They have one of the accomplices. That's Merle Tantro. The other two, they're still on the loose or they're possibly dead. But the truth is the case continues to be open. They are unsolved and they need to be solved. Let me call you back. Okay, so Bill, this might seem like uh, too open-ended of a question, but... How do we go about solving this, right? Because I'm thinking, yeah, this was a while ago, but if this guy was a young man when he did this, you know, he still could easily still be alive, could easily still be out raping and killing people. I figure San Diego, kind of a a small town almost, right? And like, I feel like someone's got to know something about this. So what should... What, what, uh, how, do we, how do we help figure out who did this? Okay. Well, of course, at full disclosure, transparency is always the best way to go. I think that the police department should open this case up, make things available for the public to help. And uh, look, and I will say about this guy and his age, he's probably possibly dead or very, very old. Why do I say that? Because my position is that he's a very developed serial killer. And to be developed at this stage, or to that stage where you're packing miles, you have a very well-developed signature, and you did it in 1978, 1984, and I know that a number of other cases he did as well. He had to be at least between 31 and 38 years of age to have that type of developed signature. The mutilation of the breasts, all those things. But, People talk, people hear things. So my suggestion is, if anybody has information that could lead to even just reopening this case, taking a look at it, there is a family out there. There are two families, that of Barbara, as well as Claire. They have siblings. They would like to know what happened to their sister and have a bit of justice by finding out what truly happened and maybe a bit of finalization for the family. So if you have any information, please call 619-531-2293. That is the San Diego Police Department's homicide unit. And I'm sure that the detectives there 
would like to hear anything you may have to say that's relevant to this case. Please don't call if you're just going to joke around. This is a very serious matter. Two young ladies, possibly more, in my opinion, lost their lives. And we want to bring this guy to justice. So I suggest that they call that number. And the number one more time is 619-531-2293. And that is the San Diego Police Department's Homicide Unit. Okay. Well, I guess we'll leave it there for now. Is there anything you want to throw out there before we sign off, Bill? Well, only I ask that uh, the uh, the audience, the police sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every two weeks. It's free. And uh, you get some bonus content there about things that happen on death row that I only can write about because I am I was there for 40 years. And, uh, yeah, take a look at it. You know, also take out my uh, YouTube page and uh, check me out on TikTok as well. I have videos going out there and different things that relate to death row diaries and true crime. Well, as I always say, thank you so much. Uh, be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time.